The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good evening. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate, and if you can't tell by my voice, I am not Vena Jones-Cotts. I am your guest host, Jerry Fink, talking to Dan Harvey about a strategy called the Burr Strategy. If you have questions, please send them to us at askvena at gmail.com or call in at 877-772-9658. So tonight we're talking to Dan Harvey. He's a real-life uh, investor from Philadelphia about the strategy that took him from a dead-end job to a million-dollar rental portfolio and using one of the hottest strategies in the country, at least for now, the Burr strategy. So Dan is married uh, to Erica and has two kids named Danny and Eric. He's originally from Philadelphia now resides out in Delaware County, which is still in the Philadelphia area. Uh, Dan, the real estate man, is a graduate of Dobbin Vocational High School where he studied electronics. While attending Dobbins, he was chosen to participate in a co-op program working with SEPTA. After graduation, he stayed with SEPTA for 18 years until 2014 when he quit to become a full-time real estate investor. In 2008, Dan started a real estate investment company called DMH Investments to take advantage of the declining real estate prices. Those of you who were around then will remember that. And since then, DMH Investments has grown into a multi-million dollar business. Um, the business uh, focuses on acquiring distressed properties, and I'm not going to give this away. I'll let Dan talk more about this here in a little bit. But one of the things that uh, I think is really impressive is one of the major achievements that his company has done was his buy-the-block acquisition, where they bought a full block of multifamily properties, renovate them, and brought them back to their former glory. So I think that's a wonderful thing there. A couple of real quick personal highlights. He stays in touch with the real estate market and trends by attending numerous educational seminars throughout the region on real estate management, real estate investing, creative real estate techniques, and all those sort of things. He is a popular speaker at community events on the topic of multifamily conversions and transitioning from full-time, or excuse me, transitioning to full-time business owner. So, Dan, welcome. I think you're on the phone. I, I am here. Thank you for having me. Thank All you right. for the kind, kind introduction. Appreciate oh, that. Quite welcome. So um, we always like to start the show by hearing about your journey uh, into real estate. In the, uh, so in the first place, what, what got you interested in real estate? So my path uh, is, is a lot different than most other investors. Um, I actually had zero interest and investing in real estate. Um, as you mentioned from my bio, um, I worked for a, a local transportation company. Um, I was 
a union, a union, a union electrician. <laughs> and I, heard I that. thought that was, yeah, yeah. So, um, I, I, you know, I was, I was raised to find that good job and hang on to it. And that, and I found that good job really early. It was right after high school. Um, and, um, I had started a, a another small business. And, um, so I was doing pretty good. I was a young guy and my mom, who, who is a real estate agent, but she's a mom. So I was a young guy. I was making money and she didn't want me to do what a lot of young guys do when they start making money, which is, you know, wasted on things that later would have no value. So she said, why don't you invest in real estate? I had zero interest. But it's my mom. I said, well, well, I'll make her feel good. I'll go out. I will look at some deals. But ultimately, I'm not buying. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to buy anything. And from going out and looking at properties, I got an idea. I said, well, I have my job. I have this business. This would be a great third stream of income. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I got started. Very good. Very good. So how, how old were you when you bought your first one? The first investment property, because I bought my primary property, I actually bought my childhood home first. My okay. first investment <laughs> property, I was about 23. Okay. All right. Very good. Um, you know, it's, it's great when, when people can get started that early, that's for sure. You get a, a huge head start on, on a lot of people. Um, we've got, Absolutely. We've got about, uh, say, four minutes before we take our first break. Let's, let's start with just a, a high-level overview with Burr, I know a lot of people might not know what Burr is, uh, or even know what it stands for, and I'll bet that there are many out there who have who, who have done it without even knowing that that's what they did. <laughs> so, can you sure. just, at a real high level, uh, explain what what Burr is? Sure. So, Burr is an acronym stands um, for um, buy, rehab, rent. Re, re, refinance and repeat. So high level is you buy a distressed property, you will rehab that property to force appreciation, you rent that property out so that there's cash flow, you then refinance based off of the new value of that property, and then you take that capital and, and you repeat the process. So high level, that's that's the Burr strategy. Okay, and typically, how long from the day you acquire a property until you're able to do that uh, cash out refinance? How long how long does that typically take? So that really depends. When I first started, um, like you uh, stated in 2010, you were able to buy cheap properties that were in decent shape. And so they only needed maybe paint and carpet. And so in that case, you would be looking at two, three months maybe, and that's the whole process. But because of where we are in the market now, generally to actually execute this this, this strategy, you have to buy properties that need much more work. So I'd say it's much more common now. These are generally more like full gut. You're more looking like six to nine months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll we'll dig into that a little bit um, later, but um, 
just real quick, you know, that's a lot of a lot of things, a lot of steps, you know, to go through all the B R R R R. So uh, we're going to go into a lot of details on each one of those. I know tomorrow night at at the uh, Cincinnati RIA meeting, uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later too. But let's uh, let's take just maybe a couple minutes here. What kinds of properties do you focus on buying? Like how many bedrooms? What neighborhood? Price range? Um, what might keep you from buying a particular property? Okay, so. Um, I will speak to probably what most of your listeners are going to do because my strategy is a little more high level. So what I started off doing is single family properties. Um, you're going to most likely be looking in, in I'd say C class neighborhoods, um, where there is, uh, room for room for, uh, appreciation, um, if you can find a property that doesn't need a lot of, of work and the owner is just selling it cheaply, obviously that is your best bet. But like I said, in this market, that, that, that's becoming much more difficult. So you're, the, the, pro, the properties you're going to find are going to be problem properties. They're going to have some, some, some issues. Many of them are going to be very, very outdated. So you may need brand new plumbing, wiring, and again, by doing all that work, you are forcing appreciation and adding value. Right, right. Okay, we'll come back to that after the break. But uh, if you have questions that you'd like to ask Dan, please send them to askvina at gmail.com or call in at 877-772-9658. And welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your guest host, Jerry Fink, talking today with Dan Harvey, who also happens to be the main presenter at tomorrow night's Rio of Greater Cincinnati meeting, which you can attend wherever you're listening from. You can link to join us on Zoom at CincinnatiRIA.com. That's CincinnatiREIA.com. So um, let's go back to the, the question we were on before, Dan. Um, what... Um, I, I know this varies so much by by city and by area, but what price range uh, properties do you typically deal in? Um, I like to deal in properties that um, I'd say the the after repair value is going to be anywhere from um, two hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand um, dollars. You know, I find that those properties. Um, you, you can you can find a a decent amount of of those properties in my Philadelphia area. So again, that's like a C neighborhood, maybe like an old row home um, that's been vacant. Okay. Um, and, and that's just you know where you're going to find the most inventory. Mm-hmm. So just for people who might might not recognize the nomenclature here, a, a C neighborhood is typically one that is mostly rental properties um you know not not entirely but mostly rental properties that's what kind of tells you that that's a c neighborhood so get your your mind kind of around that piece piece of the puzzle um what about things that would keep you from buying uh a property it's too small it uh, doesn't have a garage uh, obsolete for floor plans structural issues anything like that that would keep you from buying a property Sure. Um, I, I think out of out of some of the examples that you just listed, some things that might keep me from from buying 
uh, a property is uh, major structural issues, and not that they can't be fixed or that you can't buy it for 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 a more discounted amount, but it's it's the time time frame. Mm-hmm. So it may take you longer. The longer that you it takes to fix the property, the the more interest that 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 is going to cost you. Therefore, that that could eat into the into the refinance portion of of the property. Uh, I also would stay away from properties that did not have clear comps. So, if you are looking at say a single family property in uh, in in an area where there are only row homes or maybe uh, twins or, or townhomes, mm-hmm. and there's not accurate um, accurate comps, then I would stay away from from those projects also. Right, the the oddballs in the neighborhood. Yep, yep, understand Absolutely. That. Yep, yep. Okay, I understand um, you kind of have a twist on this strategy that most uh, BRR practitioners don't, in that you... Um, you look for houses that can be converted from single families to multis, and I'm I'm curious, why is that, and what obstacles or issues does that um, bring up, uh, zoning or permitting or anything like that? <laughs> so it, it is an interesting twist on it. Yes, so um, I'm gonna I'm gonna walk your listeners down my memory lane. So around 2000, and from 2010 to about 2000, and I'd say 15, you had there was a, a, a large inventory of bank-owned properties, right. meaning I could I could call a real estate agent, ask for bank-owned properties. I could get a long list. I could go through that list, um, and I could still I could make a lowball offer and still get the property. Um, and that included multifamily properties, right? I started in single family. I moved into multi multifamily properties, which is two to four units. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I found was about around 2016, banks were no longer selling multifamily properties at any real discount. In fact, they were selling multifamily properties. Even if they were vacant, they were selling them at, at retail prices. So it really put a, a a a kink into my strategy. So what I what I noticed though was that Philadelphia, uh, at least, but you can look at this strategy everywhere had had a lot of vacant large homes, right? Properties that that are three story, maybe six bedroom, and most families now are not looking for a six bedroom home. Right. Uh, so I did some research and I f- realized that 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 in Philadelphia they have something that's called buy right zoning, which means that according to certain zoning classifications, you are allowed to you are allowed to turn a single family property into a multifamily property. Uh, and where you get the benefits of doing that, I, I call it the Burr strategy on steroids, right. because you're using the same fundamentals as Burr. You are buying a distressed property and you're rehabbing it. You're going to rent it out, but you also have the have the added layer of what's called highest and best use. Mm-hmm. So, 
So the seller is selling me this property as a, let's say, single-family property, but I am going to convert that property into a four, five, six-unit property, right? They're, you know, therefore adding that much more value, but also I'm, I'm still forcing, I'm still forcing, I'm forcing appreciation by doing all of that right. work. Right, right. Um, so I found that strategy to just um, be a great strategy, and what it and what I was doing in, in one to in, in four or five single family burr strategy um, uh, projects I could do in one project with with doing a conversion. Okay, all right, that makes sense. That's uh, that's wonderful. Um, how do you how do you figure out? What, what formula do you use uh, for what you want to pay for a property, and, and why do you use that formula on uh, on this particular strategy? Okay. I, that's a great question. So when I'm looking at properties, um, so you, you always want to start with the end in mind, right? So the, the next to the last R is the refinance, right? So what i'm looking at well what how much will how much of a loan will the bank give me against the new after repair value right after we right. do all of this work right so in general in some banks will 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 be different you you will get about a 75% loan to value right as a cash out right so in my mind, I have to be all in to this project, obviously less than 75%. Otherwise, I will not be able to recoup the money that I have into the deal, which is the main purpose of the Burr strategy. So when I'm looking at projects, I'm looking to be into projects for no more than 65% of the after repair value. Okay. All right. All right. So that's the top line. And then just real quick, one mm -hmm. run through the rest of your formula where sure. you figure out what so, you're going to pay. So, so, so that's going to be your, that's going to be your all in cost. Then you, 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 you have to take out how much the rehab on that property is going to cost. If you're new, I, I would recommend that you have a contractor walk through the property with you because there's so much that you just don't know. Um, so once you, once you have that all in number, you want to then, you, you want to take out how much that rehab cost is, is going to cost you. And gen generally I, I estimate how, how much my, my holding and closing costs are going to be because that's a real cost um, as well. Sure is. So once, once you, Subtract those numbers from your from your all-in cost. That's going to be your your offering cost. So a really quick example: if the property, if you believe the property is going to be worth one hundred thousand dollars, you you want to be all-in at sixty-five percent of that value, right. which will leave you at sixty-five thousand dollars. If your rehab is going to be roughly twenty thousand um, dollars. Uh, and your holding cost is another five thousand, so that's in total twenty five thousand. Sixty five minus twenty five, 
your your offer on the property is going to be roughly forty thousand dollars. Right. Right. Okay. Um, real quick before the next break, we have a listener question here. When Dan okay. converts a single family to a multifamily, does he add additional furnaces, water heaters, electrical service, or is he including utilities in the rent? Great question. So as, as a landlord, you want to push off as many expenses as possible. So when, when I create my multifamily projects, uh, I separate out everything, water, heat, Air, everything is separate and paid for by the tenant that will increase your net operating income. Exactly. Yep. Yep. All right. Uh, sounds like a good place for a break here. So, again, if you have questions for Dan, uh, send them to askvina at gmail.com or call them in at 877-772-9658. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your guest host, Jerry Fink, talking today to Dan Harvey about the strategy that took him from employee to full-time investor with a multi-million dollar rental portfolio fast. At tomorrow's uh, tomorrow night's online RIA of Greater Cincinnati meeting, Dan is laying out his whole system at 715, excuse me, 715 Eastern. And at 6 o'clock, I'll be talking about the early, at the Early Bird Workshop about the basics of accounting and bookkeeping for real estate investors. You can join all of us. Go to CincinnatiRIA.com to get your link to that. All right, we had a couple questions come in over the break. Uh, first one uh, came in online here. Um, for purchases, do you use private lenders or hard money lenders? Uh, he says he turned in late and might have missed that. No, he did not. <laughs> so, uh, private lenders or hard money lenders, or how do you how do you finance them initially? So, um, my uh, I've 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 used all all um, sources of funding to purchase properties. I've I've used hard money. Uh, which 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 I will go into more into more detail uh, about um, in the actual presentation, um, and I've used private lenders, which which are just private individuals who act as the bank um, and lend you uh, funds. Um, mm-hmm. But the way I would look at it is, I don't think that it's an either or thing, right? You want to find as many sources of capital as possible right i agree yep okay and let's go to the phone we have russell from connecticut hi how are you good how you doing good yeah good to hear you what, what happened to vina is she okay <laughs> she she is on a plane <laughs> oh okay great yeah yeah great well, well yeah, great to know uh um so uh here's my question question has to do with um i hear a lot of talking about rehab and all the and all this how how have you been handling the last couple of years with all the with all the, the supply and demand uh, crises going on with respect to the with respect to the the, the huge uh, price increases both in supplies and labor? Yeah. So, so uh, on the supply side, we we plan uh, for for our projects. So what you what you learn after a while is uh, at what point do you need to order things for 
for example, um, generally speaking, say, I'll call it uh, pre-COVID, windows, if you need a custom windows, they would take about four weeks. Um, during the height of COVID and even uh, during the height of COVID, that, that got pushed to as far as 12 weeks. And now, mm-hmm. from what I'm seeing, it's, it's more six to eight weeks. So you just yeah. have to stay on stay on top of your of your vendors and and plan and plan accordingly. Um, as far yeah. as labor, as far as as far as the rise in in labor, um, yeah, it's it's sort of the same thing. So so you so you stay in touch with your with with your contractors and with your subs. You know the big part of this business or any business is about is about building relationships mm-hmm. so i'm calling them hey you know how's your staffing you know our 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 costs going to be going up um because generally we base our budgets on you know prior on prior experiences and prior on prior costs costs have absolutely gone up and so you you have to you have to adjust your offer pricing to make up that difference. And I just say just be much more much more careful about what deals that you are looking at because there's a lot less tolerance um, for, for, for making those budgeting errors because right. the prices have really gone up. Right. Right. And, yeah, much less room for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the rehabber, the rehabber in me has to chime in here and say, and make sure you have your contingency factor in there. You know, you're, you're yeah. Gotcha. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, by the way, Russell, uh, Vina just texted me and said, "Tell Russell I was just in Connecticut. Where were where were you? <laughs> so, where in Connecticut was she? She was at uh, CT Rio." Uh, oh wow! Yeah. Sorry, I missed, sorry, we missed each other. Yep, <laughs> well, yep. I'm a little down the road, but uh, cool. I'm All actually right. in the process of moving from one town to another to Norwalk, Connecticut. Okay. So I'm right. closing on something. All right. All right. Well, thanks for calling in. You're right. welcome. Thank you. We've got another listener, not so much a question, but a comment. And um, those of us who were around will remember this. Uh, the listener says, "I knew a lot of people in the last hot market who did this. You know what we're talking about the." pull money out, refinance thing, and then lost houses during the crash because they refinanced them at very high loan-to-value and with adjustable rate loans or loans with balloons. And when rents dropped, they couldn't cover the payments. This isn't so much a question as a warning. People should, shouldn't should take the max out of their properties even if they can. So uh, just, again, kind of a warning for those of us who were, you know, who were around during those days, remember that. So a uh, very good comment there. Okay, let's get a couple more questions in here. Um, so a, a question that I'm surprised a, a listener hasn't asked yet is how are you finding good deals in the market right now? We, after all, we know that every house is overpriced now, right? <laughs> so, um, you know, those, again, those of us who have been around know that there's always, there are always deals, but how, how are you finding your deals at this point? So, um, again, it's, it's all about your relationships. So um, yeah, I, I, I talk a lot about, uh, about networking, right? And so, so these RIA groups are, are a great opportunity. Um, so I am in contact with many agents. I, uh, I'm in contact with many wholesalers. 
wholesalers are individuals who go out and find off-market properties and they put them under contract and they resell the contract to to other investors and they take their cut. Um, and then I, I also um, market for my own off-market leads as well. Um, I, I, I do want to go back to that to that comment about the overleveraging, which I believe um, I believe to be true, um, uh, with some caveats. You know, the, as I, as long as um, I believe that you um, you make sure that your tenant base is solid, because there's not much difference, um, in, in in my opinion between doing a, a refi cash out as there is and doing a purchase. Both of them, you would be leaving in about 25% um, uh, um, uh, of, a, of uh, equity. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something about the cash out that I think that scares people. And then ultimately, it's, it's what do you do with, with the capital once you take the cash out? True. Um, so those are things that that your listeners should think about, right? Because the the refi cash out, um, you know, you can do what you want with the cash, but uh, I think it does make sense to make sure that you have capital on hand that can help you get through tough, tough, tough spots. Right. Reserves. Yep. Yep. Reserves yep. are a huge, huge thing. Um, yeah, and I guess the other thing in that comment uh, that I wanted to kind of reiterate is is back in, you know, the 2000s, um, you know, we could get a 90% investor loan on a signature, you know, it was ridiculous. Um, and then they were also fixed, uh, they were not fixed rate loans, they were adjustable rate. So, you know, the yeah. combination of the high, high LTVs and the adjustable rates um, really did get a lot of people in trouble. Um, I want to also reiterate, you were just talking before this question about how you use relationships and, and, you know, RIAs are an incredible, incredible resource for those relationships. So if you do not have a RIA near where you are, um, you can always join Cincinnati RIA. We have people from all over the country. In fact, we have a few international people at this point as part of Cincinnati RIA. Um, so, you know, you get access to all of our programming and everything by being a, a not local member as well. So um, find a RIA or join Cincinnati RIA. All right. So let's um, let's hit one here. We, we talked a minute, uh, kind of a few minutes ago about how you buy them with hard and private money um, and how long it takes to get them, you know, fixed and rented. What about the actual refinancing process? Uh, you know, how long is it taking you to actually get through the refinance process? Uh, do you have seasoning issues, and um, are, are you finding that the the underwriters are slow walking refis and all that kind of stuff with the the changing rates and things along that line? Mm-hmm. Are you seeing any of that? So, um, let me just sort of uh, just kind of break it down for your listeners. So, there, I'd say there's two main buckets that you could refinance with. Uh, one of them are the are the no doc lenders, which I think you were speaking to right, earlier. Right. 
those lenders, um, they're, they're asset-based. They're, they're more concerned about your credit score and the value of your property. You don't have to show tax returns, so forth and so on. Uh, those lenders are extremely sensitive to changes in the interest rate market, right? I'm not going to get into how their business works, but they are extremely sensitive to that, and they're changing weekly. Right. Like it's right. you know I've know I know people who 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 have um, uh, a property that was going through the refinance process. They were quoted at maybe four and a half, and they actually closed somewhere in the sixes. Um, it's that one is th- that the no doc lenders are more of the I'd say wild wild west of lending. They they're much less regulated. Um, um, and they're way more sensitive to changes and rates. So if that's the the route that you have been thinking about taking, um, you should look into it because those rates are, are changing, and it could affect how much you take out of the property um, uh, and if you're able to actually execute the full birth strategy. The other side of the coin is using a uh, local – uh, credit union, local uh, regional bank, which are portfolio lenders and they lend off their balance sheets. They are much less sensitive to um, interest rate changes, uh, but they do full underwriting, which means they need to see three years of tax returns. They need a full personal financial statement. They need your firstborn. They need a lot of things. But they're doing a full underwriting of you and of your business, and then the building is secondary, right? Um, so uh, prior to these interest rate hikes, the no docs was like there There was literally like no underwriting except for them running your credit and you telling them about the property. So you could get approved same day. And then the, the longest part of the process would be the appraisal. Uh, for your for your local uh, for your regional banks and your credit unions, the underwriting process could be anywhere from a week or two because again they they they're doing a fine tooth comb through your financials, um, but they also are excuse me again are less sensitive to changes in the market. They were lending through COVID. At the height of COVID, even when no doc lenders were not, so um, yeah, a big part of this business is that your lend- is that your listeners are going to have to become savvy about how finance how financing works, okay. right? And yep. so you have to take the time to learn to learn those things, right? Okay, all right. Well, let's take uh, a break and get a weather and traffic update real quick here. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your guest host, Jerry Fink, filling in for Vena Jones-Cox, who will be with Dan and I at tomorrow night's RIA of Greater Cincinnati online meeting. We'd love you to join us to learn more about the Burr strategy. And if you come at 6 Eastern, I'll even give you a lesson in something that we all hate doing, but we all have to get right, which is bookkeeping and accounting. Get your Zoom link at CincinnatiRIA.com. All right, Dan. Um, You've kind of touched on this, but let's go back and make sure everybody understands this. Um, how much of your own money do you have in the deal before you refinance it, 
and then after you refinance it? So it's on a deal-by-deal basis. Um, I I don't mind putting in money into deals because um, I I vet them, you know, very, very thoroughly. But I also deal with private lenders who will lend me um, all of the capital to fund the deals. Uh, So uh, now that keep in mind that it took time to build those relationships and starting off, I used to use all of my own money. Right. So I started off by flipping houses, flipping houses first. I built up some cash, and before the burr was called the burr strategy, as you kind of mentioned earlier, right? Because there, because I'm sure there are investors that are doing this that that, that don't have uh, a cute acronym for it. I was using my own cash, and but it, it was a very slow process. Um, so right now, in most deals, I don't have any any of my own capital but i would i would say it's, it's fair that your your listeners expect to have about 20 percent of the cost of the project into the deal while the deal is is active mm-hmm. and look to get that money out on the refinance side of the of the um of the equation right uh and one more thing again just because you can take the money out doesn't mean you have to. If you're happy with with just getting your capital out of the deal and not taking uh, additional funds, that's also an an option based off the, based off of your risk tolerance. Right, right. Yeah, when you start looking at you know global um, debt coverage and that kind of thing, those those things come into play real real big time. Um. What what are the biggest rewards for you personally in doing this particular strategy? Well, I, I'd, I'd have to – I don't know if I would boil it down to this strategy. I use this strategy because it works in the current environment that we are in. But the the, the biggest joy that I get from, from being a full-time looking investor is uh, having – Having uh, having more freedom and have and, and and having control over my time. I have two mm-hmm. small children. I'm able to go to events. I don't have to call off. I don't have to ask anybody. I'm able to do what I want, and that's within reason, obviously. But um, you know, I do have that freedom. So that that to me is has been the greatest part even much more than making more money than i was working working a full-time job it's it's having the freedom um to do what i want mm-hmm. yep yep um what do you what do you find in are the biggest challenges in the business right now is it finding enough deals finding the contractors the materials or or whatever what what's what's the biggest challenges right now so uh, if you'd asked me this question a month ago, I would have said the challenges are the, the biggest challenge is finding the right deal. I think right now the biggest challenge is going to be interest rates uh, as they climb. That um, it, it's going to affect the back end of the deal. And remember, um, I was saying you have to start with with the end in mind. Mm-hmm. And so if if the financing numbers don't make sense, 
then it's going to put even a bigger strain on the deals that you can do. And there's always a delay in the market for people to actually understand they cannot sell their properties for as much as they want to right. because they know a buddy who did or their cousin or a few, or they might have sold some in the past. But um, so, you know, they're going to they're going to want to stick to their number until they realize that their number no longer makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think the other thing to kind of throw in there is, you know, you got to have your backup strategy. You know, if if you get into one of these and you're not able to refinance it, does the deal make sense to hold, you know, until the market turns? So, you know, kind of a, yeah. the, the plan B, <laughs> as it were. Yeah. Yep. Or you can just sell it. You know, right. also, right. um, and, and get, and get out of it. Sometimes, even though people don't want to hear this, sometimes you have to cut your losses. You may even mm-hmm. take a little bit of a loss, yep. but, but you don't let it take you down. Right. right? So, you know, you yep. take a little bit of a loss. Maybe I, I was like, I've, I've personally done this. You sometimes you have to take a little bit of a loss. Right. Um, uh, but be, because real estate is, is a long-term, um, business. Right. It's not about this year, next year. Um, right. Hopefully we will be around for many more years to come. And so you want to think about it in, in, in a more long term, um, uh, a long term uh, perspective. Yep. Yep. OK. Um, do you think this is a good strategy for a brand new investor? And what are the key resources uh, our listeners need to be thinking about? Uh, education, hard money lender, building the team and who should be on a team, getting your credit scores in line, getting pre-qualified for long-term financing. What what are your thoughts along that line? So I do think that this is a strategy for newer investors. It's one I use when I first started. Um, I ha- I've seen many, um, many newer uh, investors utilize this strategy. So it, it's, it, it is a strategy that can be used if you are new, as long as you follow the formula. Um, so to, to your question of what, what should you be doing? Because when you're thinking about real estate, the, the actual bricks is not the most important part. Like the, the bricks is the avenue of which you execute your returns. Mm-hmm. What's really important is having the knowledge and the team around you. So like you were saying, who's going to be your hard money lender? Who's going to be your your long-term refinance lender? Who's going to do, who's going to handle your uh, insurance? Who's going to handle your title work? Who's going to be your contractor? These are all things that you can build up even before you purchase the property, right? And so once you have the property, then you can execute the strategy because, again, it's not about the actual building itself. It's about the strategy and finding bricks that you can execute the strategy on. Right, right. Um, got just a couple minutes here. We've got one more uh, listener question that came in. How did you initially meet and approach private lenders when you were brand new? Good question. 
Um, so I knew I was going to, I wanted to use private lending from the first time I heard about it. I was amazed. I didn't even know that that, that even existed. So the first thing I did is before I approached anybody, I got educated on it. So I found somebody who was teaching how to, um, how to source private lending, how to structure it. Uh, I took the program. I learned how it all works so that I was prepared for, for the opportunity when the opportunity came up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the one thing that I want your listeners to keep in mind. You have to, you have to be prepared for the opportunities that you want. So the first thing, if you are interested in meeting private lenders, is understanding which, how, how those deals are structured, what you can say, what you can't say. Right. Um, so then when you meet them, you can actually execute on it, and you don't have to try to figure it out after meeting them. But you, know, you can meet wealthy individuals almost anywhere. That's not the hard part. The hard part is, is or not so much hard, but but the skill part is understanding what to do once you meet the person. So that's where I would put my focus at. But you know, you could meet them at charities. You could meet them at at the RIAs. I met yep. private investors at <laughs> Absolutely. at RIAs. Yep. So 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 learn the skill set first, right? Because the knowledge is what you really need. And then once you have that knowledge, meeting the individuals. Um, will come a lot easier because you'll be able to spot opportunity. All right. Well, Dan, thank you for being with us. Uh, Everyone, you've been listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. If you want more in-depth discussion about real estate, join Vina, Dan, and I at tomorrow night's Rio of Cincinnati meeting where you'll learn about the basics of accounting for real estate investors at 6 and all the details about Dan's Burr strategy at 715. Get your link to join us online at www.cincinnatiria.com. Vina will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.